Hello, and welcome to Scarlet Tavern. Grab a drink, take a seat, and let's begin. In today's episode, we journey into the haunting shadows of the 1980s, exploring the chilling and malevolent spree of Richard Ramirez. Known as the Night Stalker, his reign of terror cast a dark pall over Los Angeles, forever changing the city's nightscape. Join us as we unravel the complex web of one of the most notorious serial killers in American history. This is Scarlet Tavern. We are all back. Um, so, we are starting our little trail series of uh, connecting topics. Um, mm-hmm. We just did Elisa Lamb, who stayed at the Cecil Hotel, and that is transitioning into somebody who else, somebody who also stayed at the Cecil Hotel, Richard Ramirez. Um, the Night Stalker. Yes. So we have not done a serial killer in a little bit. Um, so, yeah. but we're we're going to start amping up the serial killers. And we're, we're going to start with Richard Ramirez. Um, we'll save some of the bigger name ones for later. Um, but I guess without further ado, let's just jump right in yeah um, the most infamous killers there ever was all right so ricardo levia munez ramirez was born in el paso texas on february 28 1960 at 207 a.m to julian tapia ramirez and mercedes munoz ramirez the youngest of their five children his father, a Mexican national and former Ciudad Juarez policeman, who later became a laborer in the Adjacin, Topeka, and Santa Fe Railway, was an alcoholic who was prone to fits of anger that often resulted in physical abuse towards his wife and children. Richard began smoking marijuana and drinking alcohol at the age of 10. Psychiatrist Michael Stone describes Ramirez as a made psychopath as opposed to a born psychopath. He says that Ramirez's schizoid personality disorder contributed to his indifference to the suffering of his victims and his untreatability. Stone also stated that Ramirez was knocked unconscious and almost died on multiple occasions before he was six years old, and as a result, later developed temporal lobe, epilepsy, aggressivity, and hypersexuality. Um, This is, we talk about this all the time with serial killers, this is the whole nature versus nurture. Um, so you get, you get the nature versus nurture here, um, with him, it's claimed to be nurture, not nature because of the abuse that his dad put on him. They said that if none of that would have happened, that his schizophrenia would have been held that he probably would not have turned out the way he did. I mean, could say that a lot about a lot of people. Ed Kemper, for example, too. Um, 
As a 12-year-old, Richard, or Richie, as he was known to his family, was strongly influenced by his older cousin, Miguel Mike Ramirez, a decorated Green Beret combat veteran who himself had already become a serial killer and a rapist during his time in the United States Army in the Vietnam War. Mike often boasted of his brutal war crimes and shared Polaroid photos with Richard, showing Vietnamese women whom he had raped, murdered, and dismembered or decapitated. Richard would later state while incarcerated that he was fascinated rather than repulsed by the images and stories Mike shared with him. Mike taught his young cousin some of his military skills, such as killing with stealth and effectively staying hidden in the dark, especially at night. Around this time, Richard began to seek escape from his father's violent temper by sleeping in a local cemetery. Richard was present on May 4, 1973, when Mike fatally shot his wife, Jessie, in the face with a handgun during a domestic argument. Like the graphic photos and stories of his cousin's war crimes in Vietnam, Ramirez would later similarly remark that witnessing the murder was not traumatic for him in any traditional sense, but rather a subject of fascination. After the shooting, Richard became sullen and withdrawn from his family and peers. Mike was later found not guilty of Jesse's murder by reason of insanity, with the shooting attributed to PTSD from his service in Vietnam. He was confined for several years at the Texas State Mental Hospital. Shortly after the shooting, Richard moved in with his older sister, Ruth, and her husband, Roberto, an obsessive peace peeping Tom who took Richard along on his nocturnal exploits. After Mike was released from the mental hospital in 77, he sometimes accompanied Richard and Roberto on these voyeuristic walks, spying on women in the nearby areas through their windows. By the time Richard had turned 14 in early 1974, he began using LSD frequently. He and Mike resumed bonding over their shared use of drugs and alcohol. It was during this period that Richard began to cultivate an interest in Satanism and the occult. So this is, again, one of the nature versus nurture. Um, as opposed to somebody like... Um, like pretty much most of the serial killers they had a traumatic childhood um however with the nurture of richard ramirez he was literally nurtured into this he was shown all this which i will say for those that don't know the not so much the murder but the raping of men of women in vietnam was very common yeah it was very common there there was the gis were absolutely brutal because at that time it was there was high amounts of racism towards vietnamese high amounts and the gis were there to just kill that's what they were there for Plus, uh, drug use was uh, very rampant in in the U.S. Army of Vietnam. Um, Vietnam is one of the endpoints of the uh, what's called the Golden Triangle. It's a um, it's a region in Southwest Asia that is uh, known for the development of heroin and marijuana. Uh, it's what was prime was one of America's primary sources of heroin in the 1960s and early 1970s. Um, so you had a bunch of U.S. soldiers. Now, again, this isn't to say every U.S. soldier was doing it, but it no. was very, it was very, more, it was a lot more common than any, 
than I'm sure anybody's ever willing to admit. Um, but you couple with the brutality of the Vietnam War and add drugs and all this other stuff, yeah, this is not a very not a very um, surprise that uh, Mike Ramirez turned out the way he did, and then of course now he's you know grooming young yeah. young Richard to be basically his successor. Yeah, and so. I know we didn't have anybody in our family, I believe, that was in Vietnam because my grandfather didn't start till Korea. Uh, correct. Your grandfather was actually in Vietnam. He was the last. He was at the tail end of Vietnam. On the last C-141 to fly in and out of Vietnam before they stopped the all of the 141s prior to that were being shot down, costing the U.S. Air Force millions each trip. So he got the quote-unquote pleasure of being the last crew to fly Green Berets and other troops in, set stuff up, and fly out. Um Ben, remind me when we are off air to tell you, because of your security clearance, we can, to tell you what my grandfather actually did in the military. Of course. I during, always love learning all During that. his long tenure of 20 years, which I mean, we, have sec- we have security clearances, so it's okay, but I will tell you, remind me when we're off air and I'll tell you what he actually did, because okay. no, we did not find out until he was out. because we had to wait till we had security clearances and he literally that was that was that was literally the last secret he told us before he died was what he did um but yeah so my grandfather was a badass in the air force um he he was a loadmaster that specialized in special forces troops um, I literally have a, I don't, my wallet's over there, but I have a coin from like some of the paratroopers we have, uh, he worked with a lot of the black ops guys and stuff like that. And he was, um, one of a select few crew that specialized in, non-common payloads, let's say. I mean, I don't, other than... We'll have to wait till afterwards. Yes, we'll wait till after, we'll wait till after recording to go into that. First you Um, had, to to quote Leonardo DiCaprio, first you had my intention, now you have my curiosity. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But yeah, so, needless to say, that Vietnam was brutal, this was not uncommon, so... Um, getting back into this, when he reached adolescence, Ramirez began to meld his burgeoning sexual fantasies with graphic violence, including forced bondage, murder, mutilation, and rape. While still in school, he took a job at a local holiday inn and used his master key to rob sleeping patrons. On at least one occasion, Ramirez molested two children in an elevator at the hotel but he was never reported or prosecuted for this act. His employment ended abruptly after Ramirez attempted to rape a woman in her hotel room and was caught in the act by the victim's husband. 
Although the husband beat Ramirez at the scene, criminal charges were dropped when the couple who lived out of state declined to return to Texas to testify against him. Yeah, so... Before he even graduated school. Hey, V. I'm uh, really... I, I'm... I think this is this is going to be a case of it's like ninety percent nurture, but well, and they they said that, and like like I said before, that I I believe it is a hundred percent nurture. It, if you look at what happened to him when he was a child, he was dropped, he was knocked unconscious, and almost died multiple times before he was six, so his brain was still developing. Um, so he had temporal lobe, epilepsy, aggressivity, and hypersexuality. Yeah, no, you're right. So I think it's a hundred percent nurture and it just, I think the only thing that went to his nature was his, um, bipolar disorder or schizophrenia. Yeah. So most, most schizophrenics aren't even violent or correct. If they're, if they're dangerous, it's mostly to themselves. Correct. Uh, Ramirez dropped out of Jefferson High School in the ninth grade. In 1982, at the age of 22, he moved to moved to and settled permanently in California. It was around this time that Ramirez began to use cocaine, which quickly became a substance of choice, and began to commit theft and burglaries to procure money for sustaining his addiction. He lived nomadically between San Francisco and Los Angeles County, during this time prior to his incarceration, he frequently traveled between the northern and southern areas of California, both before and during his year-long crime spree, which is where he began to live at the Cecil Hotel. Um, that was one of his go-tos because at that time, the Cecil was a no-questions-asked hotel. He was. They didn't bother him. They didn't have to do anything. Um, his, his room is still there. Um, obviously it's now stay on Maine. His room is still there. It is claimed to be haunted. People have claimed that they could feel the presence, a really deep and dark presence in the room that he stayed in. Um, I, I know that the Cecil really played on the fact that he stayed there when they changed to stay on Maine. I think they tried to, obviously it is haunted, but I think they tried to, get away from that and become a better hotel. Um, oh, good for them, but they're, they're still located right in the middle of Skid Row. And so we're going to, so I mean, we're going to go stay there. So they are. Yeah. I, I don't recall. Uh, we're going to, we're going to request uh, Richard Ramirez's room. I, I did not volunteer as tribute. You're being voluntold. Aaron, Aaron help me. You're being voluntold. Oh, no, we're, we're going. Oh, we're he's going. in on it. He wants to go. We are so going. So we need to start. We need to start buying EMF detectors. We need to start buying spirit boxes. All of that. I thought it was gonna be. I thought it would be. I thought it'd be interesting doing an overnight at the at the Ohio Reformatory. But now we're going oh. to the Cecil. What's next? The Stanley Hotel. I forgot to tell you that Ohio State Reformatory does uh, haunted things for Halloween. Oh. Yeah, like animatronics and all of that. So you and I can go. Pam won't. Yeah. Um, Surprised we got her in there in the first place. Me too. Um, so let's get into the murders. Um, on April tenth, nineteen eighty four, Ramirez murdered May Luang, 
a nine-year-old Chinese-American girl in the basement of his apartment building in the Tenderloin District of San Francisco. Leung, I think is how you say it, was with her eight-year-old brother and looking for a lost $1 bill when Ramirez approached the girl and told her to follow him to the basement to find it. Once they were in the basement, Ramirez beat, strangled, and raped Leung before stabbing her to death with a switchblade hanging her partially nude body from a pipe by her blouse. The killing was not linked to Ramirez until 2009, when his DNA was matched to a sample obtained at the crime scene. In 2016, officials disclosed evidence of a second suspect identified through another DNA sample retrieved from the scene, who is believed to have been present during the murder. Authorities have not publicly identified the suspect described as being a juvenile at the time, and have not brought charges due to the lack of evidence. Um, so, I th- I think it's I think it's not coincidental that his first victim was Asian. No, probably because of of his uh, cousin probably yeah. doing that is influence there. Now, for everyone listening, this is very common in ser- very infamous serial killers. This is. Well, this is like victim zero. This is the one where they start they learn, to learn. He, they learn the craft. They start. What can I do? What could I do? Jack the Rip. There's there was actually a couple of uh, victims that were, um, people believe people believe that were actually related to Jack the Ripper that were outside of the canonic what they call the canonical five. I believe it was yes. five official victims of Jack the Ripper, but they believe there were these two other victims, which that. We will be doing, Jack. Yes, but they weren't linked initially because one of the victims, I believe, actually, one of the vic- the first, the very first one lived. She Correct. she survived. And the then the, one was, was the other one was so, and we'll get into this. Jack the Ripper had a tendency to slice his victims in the like up the stomach and everything surgically. The two that were outside of the canonical five did not have that. So it's believed that they were his first two victims. This is where, that's where he crossed the line from his delusions to reality. Correct. Correct. This, and this is what poor, this poor young girl was for Richard Ramirez. This was where he finally enacted probably some of his really dark fantasies. I mean, considering all the other things he's already done. Uh, this is probably where he starts, and now we get into the Night Stalker. Correct. Um, so, on June 28, 1984, 79-year-old Jenny Vincal was found murdered in her apartment in Glassell Park, Los Angeles. She had been stabbed repeatedly in the head, neck, and chest while asleep in her bed, and her throat slashed so deeply that she was nearly decapitated. Ramirez's fingerprints were found on a mesh screen he removed to gain access through an open window. This, Ramirez's second known murder, establishes pattern of breaking into homes, committing particularly vicious murders, and frequently burglarizing his victims either before or after killing them, which was mainly to support his cocaine addiction and pay his rent. Now, there are a lot of victims, but I want to I wanna get both of your guys' thoughts as we're going through each victim of just how the murder is, the victim, the brutality, things like that. Also, we're going to start seeing his M.O. throughout a few of these. So, um, as we get on to the next one and we start going through, 
we're going to see his MO changes frequently. Typically, with a serial killer, they have a set MO. They mm. are going to stab you 17 times in the chest with a specific knife, and that's how they're going to do it. Richard Ramirez did not do that, which is why it was very hard to connect him to murders and just being a serial killer. Um, so the next one was March 17th, 1985. Ramirez attacked 22-year-old Maria Hernandez outside her home in Rosemead, California, shooting her in the face with a 22 caliber handgun after she pulled into her garage. She survived when the bullet ricocheted off the keys she held in her hands as she lifted them to protect herself. Hernandez played dead until Ramirez left the scene. Inside the house, her roommate, Dale Yoshi uh, Okazaki, age 34, heard the gunshot and ducked behind a counter when she saw Ramirez enter the kitchen. When she raised her head to get a look at what happened, he shot Oka Okazaki once in the forehead, killing her instantly. Within an hour of the Rosemead home invasion, R Ramirez pulled a 30-year-old Cy Leanne Veronica Yu out of her car in Monterey Park, shot her twice with a 22 caliber handgun, and fled. She was pronounced dead upon arrival at the hospital. The two murders and an attempted third in a single day attracted extensive coverage from the news media, who dubbed the attacker described as curly-haired with bulging eyes and wide-spaced, rotting teeth, the walking killer, and the valley intruder. I mean, he... I can see why they had a hard time. There doesn't seem to be any, like ritualistic or anything nothing that can tie it i mean if i'm a police officer my i i my thinking would be these are possible if they're home invasions they, they're just home invasions i mean it's possible at that point that they could be linked if they're in the same general vicinity but i my my first instinct would not be serial killer this would be a very violent junkie that, which, I mean, I guess he is doing it. He is really much acting like it. He's, he's robbing, he's burglarizing these homes. He's brutally killing, but he's also doing it to support a drug habit and to pay his rent. So, and so far, he's not really exhibiting signs that I would, that based on my limited knowledge, would, would classify as a serial killer. He's not leaving mementos. He's not messages these aren't really real ritualistic this is just very violent but seemingly almost random crimes to me at least so far this is what i would be feeling like this it doesn't other than just the brutality of and the probably the thrill of brutally killing these poor women i don't see anything like what we, what we would be like a, a typical serial killer as we would know it aaron what do you think He's young. He is feeding his cravings, feeding his desire. Um, 22 caliber, that's an interesting choice for a handgun. Um, be curious to know if it was one that he found, did he steal, whatever the case I is. I believe it was given to him by his cousin. Okay, so... I believe. That would... Uh, show the significance of the 22 um, to pay homage to his cousin um, the I mean the brutality of it is um, just 
him feeding his his craving, you know, his hunger. He hasn't come up with his MO yet. You know, he is at this point just trying to satiate himself. I, I've got this desire for violence. I've got this craving for murder. I've got this craving for this and this. I just need to inundate myself with it to satisfy myself. You know, kind of like when you go a bunch of days without having a Coke and then all of a sudden you're like, I just, I need a, I need a six pack. I got to have a fucking six pack. Just give it to me. You, you get done with it and you're like, ugh, that was too much, but man, was it good. Or in his case, the other Coke. Right, or the other Coke. And he is, he's, you know, he's coked up during this whole thing. He's doing these things to feed his habit. That's adding to his brutality and his lust and his cravings. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, now, Caleb, how far was Monterey Park from Rosemead? Uh, they're, like, just outside of each other, I believe. Uh, let's see. Uh. Monterey Park. They are, like, four miles from each other. So he was on foot the whole time. Right. So he's just leaving one neighborhood, going to the next neighborhood, Correct. doing his thing. And that's what we're going to see. We're going to see a pattern of him. Because <laughs> it was believed at one time that he would train hop as well. That he would ride the train and and take that down. And that's how he would hop off and make it through. And we're going to get somebody else that's very similar to that who was a train hopper. Um, we're going to be talking about the screen door killer. Um, and what's funny about him is, uh, or no, I'm sorry. Richard Ramirez is also known as a screen door, screen door intruder. Yes. I apologize. I was thinking of somebody else. There's somebody else. I don't remember. I don't think it's Richard Ramirez. There's another serial killer that's pretty similar to him that got their nickname because they could not open a screen door. They they tried to invade the house and it would not yes. open. Yes. And it Jeez. may have been Richard Ramirez. I don't remember. It's been a while since I've studied either. Richard, but... We'll see. We'll get into it. Um, on March 27, 1985, Ramirez entered a home that he had burglarized a year earlier just outside of Whittier, California, at approximately 2 a.m. and killed sleeping Vincent Charles Zazara, age 64, with a gunshot to his head from a 22 caliber handgun. First male victim. Um... Zazara's wife, Maxine Lavinia Zazara, age 44, was awakened by the gunshot and Ramirez beat her, bound her hands while demanding to know where her valuables were. 
While they ransacked the room, Maxine escaped her bonds and retrieved a shotgun from under the bed, which she was unaware was not loaded. She pulled the trigger just after he turned around and saw her. The infuriated Ramirez shot her three times with a twenty-two, killing her, then fetched a large carving knife from the kitchen. He mutilated her body by cutting an inverted cross into her chest, then removed her eyes with a knife and placed them in a jewelry box. He attempted to have sex with her body, but found himself so shaken by her attempting to shoot him that he was unable to achieve an erection. He took the jewelry box with her eyes when he left and kept it at his apartment as a souvenir until his arrest. Vincent and Maxine's bodies were discovered by their son, Peter Ramirez, or by their son, Peter. Ramirez left footprints from a pair of Avius sneakers in... <laughs> okay, this is what I'm thinking of. A uh, pair of Avius sneakers in the flower beds, which the police photographed and cast. This was virtually the only evidence that the police had at the time. Bullets found at the scene were matched to those found at previous attacks, and police determined that a serial killer was at large. Okay. A lot of stuff to unpack here. First thing. If you have a gun in your house, keep it fucking loaded. Keep it loaded. Doesn't do you yeah. any good unloaded. So, all right, let's touch on that since we're since we were there. Imagine the difference in history. Yeah. Had that gun been loaded. How many people she would have saved? Because it doesn't oh say what kind, but I'm a most common is a twelve gauge pump action. Right. Right. It was, especially in the 80s, it was probably yep. a 12 gauge pump action like we have downstairs. I would say probably in Ithaca or. And she, Remington. from from that distance, she would have put a yes. hole straight through his chest. Yes. His, his insides would have been, would have decorated oh, yeah. the wall. Oh, yeah. Right. It would easily. And yeah, she it, would have it, saved it, uh, at least 15 more victims. Yeah. I mean. Please keep in mind, we're not shaming the person no, who died, but, but it is a very important lesson here. Keep you your guns loaded. loaded. Like, I I will tell you right now, it's not a secret that I conceal carry. We live in an amazing state where, guess what? You don't have to have a license to carry, which, aren't you? Wait a minute, that's not a, that's not a, that's not a squirt gun you're carrying? I no, thought, definitely not. Man, you've been not. lying to me this whole time? Definitely not. But I carry it with me everywhere. It is loaded one in the chamber, and I have two extra magazines. So I have 46 rounds on me at all times. I can do a lot of damage with 46 rounds if you attack me. Um, so, but moral of the story, keep your guns loaded if you have them. Second thing. So this Avia sneakers thing. So this is the screen door killer. This is the one I was thinking of where he couldn't get into the screen door. Because this is one of the other things. They don't mention this, but this is where the police fucked up, okay? So, he has these AV sneakers. They're not common. What happens is the police chief goes on the news and says, Guys, we found evidence. Uh, we found the print of AV sneakers. Richard Ramirez sees it in his hotel. Proceeds and to take and... Thing. Gets rid of his shoes and gets new shoes. Yeah. Yeah. When was this again? This was in 1985. Yeah. God damn it. So, Daryl's at it again. Yeah. So, yeah. one on one, kids. Yeah. Don't disclose the evidence that you have. 
God damn, Daryl Gates yep. screwing everything up yeah. again. I'm telling you, man, he was, we, we touched on this before. He was good for a lot of things, but he was a fucking idiot at the same time. He was good for a lot of things. They they would have they would have been able to connect him to so much more because of the shoe prints, yep. but yep. they threw out their only evidence because of stating so there's it. Two things there that had those two things, one of those two happened. History could have been changed. Yeah, and when I'm talking about Avia sneakers, I'm talking about the white dad shoes. Oh, okay. like Ben Avias are what we got. Uh, what were standard issue for in basic? Oh yeah, the PT yeah, shoes. Those are, those are not very no. Like, don't just like that, those they're Av- Avia and Asics. They're the same yeah. kind of thing. That's that's what they were. They're not common. Not everybody they wore them. Forever. Oh yeah, I brutalized those in basic. Um, oh yeah, but yeah, no freaking first Daryl's covering up the Scientologist crime. Next thing you know, he's helping his officers get all away from brutalizing suspects yeah. and traffic stops. Now he's helping the serial killers get away. What's next for Daryl Gates? Which I, I can we, only wait. We are going to get into the, at some point, we will do a series on the L.A. riots and everything. Uh, we'll do L.A. riots and the police brutality and all of that and give our views on that stuff. Um because I think it's a very, especially in today's day and age where we kind of, at to some extent, have repeated some of the same mistakes. Yeah. Um, I think it, it's almost a repeat every 20 years, if you look at it. It's, so what's, what's going to happen in 2040? Same thing's going to happen. So I, we, we will cover the LA riots. We will cover all of that. I think... If you guys listen to it from cops' perspectives, you'll see that, number one, we we all agree on a lot of things, but you will see stuff from our side. So that is a future episode. Um, I will probably actually wait until the anniversary of the L.A. riots. I think that'll be a good thing. We'll wait till the anniversary and we'll do an anniversary episode of the L.A. riots. Um All right, on May 14th, 1985, Ramirez returned to Monterey Park and entered the home of Bill Doy, age 66, and his disabled wife, Lillian Doy, age 56. Surprising Doy in his bedroom, Ramirez shot him in the face with a 22 semi-automatic pistol as Doy went for his own handgun. After beating the mortally wounded man into unconsciousness, Ramirez entered Lillian's bedroom, bound her with thumb cuffs, then raped her after he had ransacked the home for valuables. Bill Doy died of his injuries while in the hospital. So not handcuffs. Thumb cuffs. Kids toys. Oh, Jesus. Yes. He's finding this. Literally He's... thumb cuffs. They are a legit thing. There were some agencies that did utilize thumb cuffs because they were a good restraint tool. Um, if you if you can keep them on, they are a good restraint tool. They're a good way to keep leverage on somebody. But they are not a good replacement for handcuffs, everybody. I, I really get Cuff the feeling the he's just... I, he's got to be just finding all these things. Like, this is... I think Aaron's right. He's just feeding these indulgences. and he's just yeah. grabbing whatever he can. Yeah, and, and I find it interesting that he has no set pattern on victims. 
So yeah, only only similar thing was, is right, a twenty-two handgun. And burglary. Yeah. And so as an investigator, this is a fucking nightmare. Well, and yeah. this also for me, if I was investigating this, even knowing what I know, this wouldn't be a serial killer. No. This would be home no, invasions. No, exactly. This would be a series of home exactly. invasions. And that's what I'm saying. It'd be a bunch of home invasions because he's not singling out homes with women. He's not singling out homes with men. He's just going into what I would assume to be random homes. He's not picking and choosing specific homes. He's and he going, really never was. Okay. No. no. This this looks like a good score. Nice, nice neighborhood. Nice house. I'm sure I can get something. Make sense into the house. Oh, look who's here. Boom, 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 boom. Do my thing. And so I, yeah, I would do serial rapist and home invasion. Not a serial killer. No, I think honestly, obviously this is the benefit of hindsight. And I'm sure, I hope LAPD Academy is teaching this. But they are. They, they really, feel, I really feel like they could have caught him very early on. If they, all they had to do it's like it's like Aaron said. Let's not like, talk hey, to the press. Said, well, there's that too. You know, <laughs> don't do that. Um, but also, you're lo- you're not looking for a serial killer. We're looking for a home invader who's just particularly brutal. You need an army of of patrol going to this area. Okay, he's going here. He's going here. He's here. We can extrapolate from this information. <sighs> this is where he's going. So I'm he's- gonna I'm gonna devil's advocate for LAPD at this time. Um, we'll say number one, the term serial killer is fairly still, still fairly new at this point. Uh, we didn't get serial killer till 75 ish. So it's only about 10 years at this point. Still new. They haven't really seen that many serial killers, uh, here. Um, and, also, we are coming at this from beginning law enforcement in the 90s um, up to what we know today where we focus on pattern recognition and things like that. It was not common practice in the 80s to think that way. No, it wasn't. And and I was going to touch on that Um like I started eighty nine ninety uh, was about where I started, and believe it or not, this was one of the things that we studied. He was he uh, was a volunteer for, back then. Yeah, for this was one of the things we studied for investigations, and it was exactly that. Why, why at the time did we not look for patterns? What caused the change in the mindset in in within the scope of law enforcement? You know, and this was one of those cases, you know, had had we law enforcement as a whole gone and broadened our spectrum and broadened our scope and went, okay, maybe this isn't what we think it is. You know, maybe maybe it is this. It's not unheard of because, you know, 79, 80, 81, there's been. Is it possible that it's happening to us? A lot of smaller departments like this feel like it couldn't happen in our neighborhood. It couldn't happen mm-hmm. in our town. 
So you're not, as a law enforcement agency, you're not actively looking for that. And on top of that, as a law enforcement agency, you don't want to admit to, to yourself and to the uh, community that you have a serial killer at large because now you're instilling panic and is that panic that has now been created going to feed his his desire you know and, and as we'll see with Richard Ramirez right. yes this very much did feed very into very much it. so there there's it, it's it's like a fine balance you know what do we do how do we treat this that kind of thing um but uh, again it goes back to we uh, and and even today some agencies still do it they they go in with blinders on and don't look out here mm-hmm. and it's well it's just this and, is it and this you know, we, is we this is why it is key if you are dealing if you are investigating things like this it's key to always maintain fresh eyes always mm-hmm. bring in somebody if if even if they're not actively working the case go to another cop and go can you look at this for me what did i miss because you are yeah. going to miss something you yeah, are going you to sta- fuck something up you're human you're just staring you're just staring at it like yeah okay like, i'm gonna look at this with the most added detail and like you said i i'm not seeing anything else i'm only seeing what's right in front of me your partner looks at it, it's like hey what about that yeah Exactly. But so, but I just feel, and again, this is probably what they would learn because, again, maybe because I know how to do, I know to think this is because of this. I was like, well, geez, if you guys had just thrown like every Tom, Dick, and Harry patrol officer in these areas, sooner or later you're gonna catch him if he's walking on foot and grabbing these and doing this was seems to be random. But again, maybe, maybe, they, maybe, maybe, maybe you're right. Absolutely, and, you, you will never know. Right, but we also have to take into account that, you know, it's the late 80s, mid mid to late 80s. California's a fucking wreck. It's a fucking train wreck. They don't have the manpower. They don't have the extra officers to be proactive to say, okay, we're going to send 25, 50, 75 officers, hit the street. This is what you're looking for. Um, I think I read... Go ahead. Well, oh, no. I was going to say they're they're in the middle of Ramirez doing all this shit, and you have the Bloods doing their thing, the the Crips doing their thing, and you have the Latin, Latin Kings Kings doing their thing. So they're, they're fighting. York, mostly. Lat, uh, they're Plus not. The Latin and, Kings and, are huge in Florida, dude. Oh, Latin Kings are huge. I, I always thought they were an East Coast thing. Now they are. They, they are. No, they, they are. They actually originated in California. Yeah. Oh, okay. But Kings. but they are they are bigger in the East Coast now. But yeah. but yeah, like they're huge in Florida. We dealt with the Latin and, Kings a lot. And they the believe it or not, the Latin Kings are actually the largest gang in the U.S. Yeah. I believe it. Um, but yeah, no, no, I get it. Like, I actually remember reading something somewhere. They said, like, if you look at the square mileage of Los Angeles and you compare the Los Angeles, how many personnel are in the Los Angeles Police Department as opposed to New York City with their square mileage, yeah. New York is almost like an armed camp in comparison. Well, yeah, to have, I mean, like, all the precincts. Square miles, 
you, yeah, you have for like I think they said like for every square mile you got like you got like ten cops in New York City for every square mile there. You Again, please, what? listeners, I am I am not. <coughs> these are not factual numbers. And I, I am. And for LA, for LA, you have one for every like five square miles. Right. Exactly, because LA is much more expansive. Correct. Exactly. And and you and then, have such a a broader area. Well, yeah. Where like like New York, Philadelphia, they have for their um, uniform patrol, they have two divisions, foot and motor. Correct. L.A. doesn't have that. L.A. does not do foot patrols because it's so big. You you have your your patrol division does their rounds and then goes in parks and does a quasi community policing foot patrol kind of in predetermined areas. Yeah, correct, correct. Because you know this is the problem area. Yeah, it's very much similar to the security forces. We'll do the exact same thing. We'll drive around most of the time, and then okay, from noon to one, foot patrol from here to there in that area. But that's that's not an uncommon practice. That was no. something that our agency did for years, and you do it um, until it gets dangerous. Well, not just that. We during the you know, 92, 93, 94, we started having an influx of um, uh, Eastside Crips coming in um, and a couple others, and we kept saying, we have a problem. We have a problem. No, we don't have a problem. Look, we have a problem. We're seeing it. We're out here. We're doing this. Well, no, we're, we're not going to address it. And yeah. it wasn't until enough of us went, hey, look, this is a problem. All of these crimes were committed because of this. Something needs to be done. <laughs> then it's the knee-jerk reaction of, okay, now we're going to create a task force and we're going to fill it with people and we're going to flood this area with you know, people in civilian clothes that are going to uh, handle the situation. So you know, the, the Ramirez thing kind of builds up to that. They're, they're at that point where they're, they're not sure what to do they know they have a problem. We don't know how to handle the problem because we have all these other problems going on. We don't have the manpower. What do we do? Um, so getting back into his stuff, one thing that I want to l- have everybody keep in mind. So he's about 25 at this point, okay? So young, fit guy. If you notice, everybody goes after their older or younger, they are less physically inclined than him. Most of them are, a lot of them are disabled, things like that, like we're about to see. On the night of May 29, 1985, Ramirez drove a stolen car to Monrovia and stopped at the house of Mabel Ma Bell, age 83, and her disabled sister, Florence Nettie Lang, age 81. Finding a hammer in the kitchen, he bludgeoned and bound Lang in her bedroom, then bound and bludgeoned Bell before using an electrical cord to shock the woman. After raping Lang, he used Bell's lipstick to draw the satanic pentagram symbol on her thigh, as well as on the walls of the of both bedrooms. The woman women were found two days later alive but comatose and critically injured. Bell later died of her injuries in the hospital. Um 
The next day, Ramirez drove the same car to Burbank and sneaked into the home of Carol Kyle, age 42. At gunpoint, he bound Kyle and her 11-year-old son with handcuffs, then ransacked the house. He released Kyle to direct him to where the family's valuables were. He then raped her repeatedly. Ramirez also repeatedly ordered her not to look at him, telling her at one point that he would cut her eyes out. He fled the scene after retrieving the child from the closet and binding the two together again with handcuffs. Okay. One thing, we're going to kind of get into some psyche here. This is just based off of my minimal experience of going to school for behavioral psychology and things like that. Um, we look at this this case here. He releases her to tell where the family valuables are and then rapes her away from the child. The child and the mother are separate. He is not committing any acts in front of the child. This would tell you that he sees himself in this child for some reason. It's probably thinking back to when his dad used to beat his mother and the kids as a drunk. Um, he also told her not to look at him. For me, if I'm hearing this, it's he sees his mother in this woman. He never had any ill will towards his mother growing up. Ever. It was his dad. His mother was a good woman to all accounts. So... My views are because he's never, ever told anybody else to not look at him. Why this woman with this 11-year-old boy? Because he sees this as his mother. He still needs to feed his impulse because he can't help it. It's an impulse. Right. But, but he needs this is his mother. Correct. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, and And the fact that he let her live... Um, she's younger, 42. Mm -hmm. So, um, she, she would be close a, to the age of his mother. Exactly. At not 25. A predator prey situation. You know, I've been preying on the elderly up to this point. Um, so this, this vict victim is closer to what my mother would be. And the fact that he release releases, brings the child into where mom is and binds them together. Correct. So the kid's not terrified yeah. and all of that. So um, on the night of July 2nd, 1985, he drove a stolen car to Arcadia and randomly selected the house of Mary Louise Cannon, age 75, a widowed grandmother. After quietly entering Cannon's home, he found her asleep in her bedroom. He bludgeoned her into unconsciousness with a lamp, then stabbed her to death using a 10-inch butcher knife from her kitchen. Ramirez repeatedly stabbed Cannon's body after she was already dead. And, she, of course, she was found dead at the scene. Um, on July 5th, I will say, we are... Obviously, these are brutal. Just fair warning to everybody listening. One of these is going to be absolutely painstakingly brutal. Because, if my recollection is correct... He rapes and kills a pregnant woman and purposely stabs her in the stomach. So just keep that in mind. 
I will warn everybody when we get there. Um, but if I re if I recall correctly, it's this case. Um, on July 5th, 1985, Ramirez broke into a home in Sierra Madre and bludgeoned 16-year-old Whitney Bennett with a tire iron as she slept in her bedroom. After searching in vain for a knife in the kitchen, Ramirez tried to strangle the girl with a telephone cord. He stated that he was startled to see electrical sparks emanate from the cord, and when his victim began to breathe, he fled the house believing that Jesus Christ had intervened and saved her. Bennett survived the savage beating and attempted strangulation, although 478 stitches were required to close the lacerations to her scalp. 478 stitches. Jeez. That's how bad he beat her. Um... On July 7th, 1985, Ramirez burglarized the home of Joyce Lucille Nelson, age 60, and Monterey Park. Finding her asleep on her living room couch, he beat her to death by stomping on her face repeatedly. A shoe print from an Avia sneaker was left imprinted on her face. Um, at this point in time, that's not they had not released that information yet. It, was, it had not been released, so he was still wearing the Avias. Um... After cruising two other neighborhoods, he returned to Monterey Park and chose the home of Sophia Dickman, age 63. Ramirez assaulted and handcuffed Dickman at gunpoint, attempted to rape her, and stole her jewelry. When she swore to him that he had taken everything of value, he told her to swear on Satan. On July 20th, 1985, Ramirez purchased a machete before driving a stolen Toyota to, to Glendale, California. He chose the home of Leela Needing, age 66, and her husband Maxon Needing, age 68. He burst into the sleeping couple's bedroom and hacked them with a machete, then killed them with shots to the head from a 22 caliber handgun. He further mutilated their bodies with a machete before robbing the house of valuables. After quickly fencing the stolen items from the Needing residence, Ramirez drove to Sun Valley, Los Angeles. At approximately 4.15 a.m., he broke into the home of the Kavananth family. He shot the sleeping 32-year-old Chanaron Kavananth in the head with a 25 caliber handgun. So, we're increasing in caliber. 25 from a 22. Guess what, guys? Yeah, right. it, it still is a shitty gun. Don't mm. use it. Um... Killing him instantly, then repeatedly raped and beat 32-year-old Somkid Kovananth. He bound the couple's 8-year-old son before dragging Somkid around the house to reveal the location of any valuable items which he stole. During his assault, he demanded that she swear to Satan that she was not hiding any money from him. On August 6, 1985, Ramirez drove to Northridge and broke into the home of 30-year-old Chris Peterson and Virginia Peterson, age 27. He crept into the bedroom, startled Virginia, and shot her in the face with a 25 caliber semi-automatic handgun. He then shot Chris in the neck and attempted to flee. Chris fought back while avoiding being hit by two more shots during the struggle before Ramirez managed to escape. The couple survived their injuries. So, and this is the thing that would also confuse police because he's technically not a serial killer. Uh, the... Serial killers, the way they're usually classified, you have to have three consecutive kills over a certain amount of time. However, serial killers always 
and he he is one of the rare exceptions. They always have an MO. They have a they have their signature. They have their thing that they do. Um, whether it's hanging them, whether it's like Jack the Ripper slicing them surgically. He doesn't do that. I mean, he does he leaves people alive. It's he's I personally would not qualify him classify him as a serial killer. I would classify him as a spree killer. Yeah, he Cuz that's just boom 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 going. So Yeah, it's, there's doesn't seem to be other than a few times he's making references to Satan, you know, the pentagram and all this other stuff. He's not doing anything ritualistic. He's just He's hyper-violent, he's brutal, he's impulsive, and he's just indulging in his really dark fantasies because he's not getting caught. Yeah. Um, on... So the couple, that couple, the Petersons, did survive their injuries, which... Um, I th- they're... I mean, they at 1985, 27 years old, they should still be alive to this day. But um, August 8th, 1985, Ramirez drove a stolen car to Diamond Bar, California, and chose the home of Sakina Abawath, age 27, and her husband, Elias Abawath, age 31. Sometime after 2.30 a.m., he entered the house and went into the master bedroom. He instantly killed the sleeping Elias with a shot to the head from a 25 caliber handgun, he handcuffed and beat Sakina while forcing her to reveal the location of the family's jewelry, then brutally raped her. He repeatedly demanded that she swear on Satan that she would not scream during his assaults. When the couple's three-year-old son entered the bedroom, Ramirez tied the child up and then continued to rape Sakina. After Ramirez left the home, Sakina untied her son and sent him to the neighbors for help. Ramirez, who had... Okay, so this is... This is where we get into a real tragedy because a Disney star was killed. Um, Ramirez, who had been following media coverage of his crimes, left Los Angeles and headed to San Francisco. On August 18, 1985, he entered the home of Peter Pan, age 66, (laughs) and Barbara Pan, age 62. Peter Pan, (laughs) see, this is what happens when he leaves Neverland. Should never have left Neverland. Um, he shot the sleeping Peter in the temple with a 25 caliber handgun, which killed him instantly. Um, he then beat and sexually assaulted Barbara before shooting her in the head and leaving her for dead. At the crime scene, Ramirez used lipstick to scrawl a pentagram and the phrase Jack the Knife on the bedroom wall. Ramirez again left a shoe print at the scene that detectives discovered matched to a specific pair of Avia shoes that was not common at the time. Lead detective Frank Salerno and Gil Carrillo contact the manufacturer of Avia Shoes and were able to retrieve the soles. Upon the discovery of the make and distribution across the U.S., only six of them existed in men's size 11 and a half. With five of them shipped to locations in Arizona and one shipped to a shoe store in Los Angeles, it was evident that the one pair of its size and kind in the state of California then belonged to the Night Stalker. When it was discovered that the ballistics and shoe print evidence of Los Angeles crime scenes matched the pan crime scene, San Francisco's then-mayor, Diane Feinstein, divulged information, including the gun caliber, in a televised press conference. 
The leak infuriated the detectives in the case as they knew the killer would be following media coverage, which gave them gave him the opportunity to destroy crucial forensic evidence. Ramirez, who had indeed been watching the press, dropped a size 11.5 avia sneakers over the side of the Golden Gate Bridge that night, and he remained in the area for a few more days before heading back to L.A. Goddamn Democrats. This is why the mayor should not be the one to create a press conference for a crime. It's not your job. That's why you have a chief of police. Not like he would have done much better, but you just like, I can, I feel the pain for those detectives, how close they were to catching him, how close. And because she opened her fucking mouth, they lost him. They will, they'll never get those shoe prints again. Nope. Um, on August 24th, 1985, Ramirez traveled 76 miles south of L.A. in a stolen orange Toyota to Mission Viejo. That night, he arrived at the home of 45-year-old James Romero Jr., who had just returned from a family vacation to Rosa uh, Rosarito Beach in Mexico. Romero's son, 13-year-old James Romero III, happened to be awake. While his family was asleep, James went outside his house to retrieve a pillow inside a truck, which was locked. When he was outside, he heard a rustling noise. Assuming it was an animal, James went to investigate the noise, but did not notice anything unordinary. James then went to his garage to begin working on his minibike before hearing Ramirez's footsteps outside the house. Thinking there was a prowler, James, after observing Ramirez through his bedroom window, went to wake his parents and Ramirez fled the scene. James raced outside and noted the color, make, and style of the car, as well as a partial license plate number. Romero contacted the police with this information, believing James had chased away a thief. So, good on the fucking kid for recognizing this and waking his parents up at 13 years old. So, teach your kids. Very key, teach your kids. Um, after this encounter, Ramirez broke into the house of Bill Carnes, age 30, and... Inez Erickson, age 29, through a back door. Ramirez entered the sleeping couple's bedroom and awakened Carnes when he cocked his 25 caliber handgun. He shot Carnes three times in the head before turning his attention to Erickson. Ramirez told her that he was the Night Stalker and forced her to swear she loved Satan as he beat her with his fists and bound her with neckties from the closet. After stealing what he could find, Ramirez dragged Erickson to another room before raping her. He then demanded cash and more jewelry and made her swear on Satan there was no more. Before leaving the home, Ramirez told Erickson, tell them the Night Stalker was here. Erickson untied herself, went to a neighbor's house for help. Surgeon removed three, two of the three bullets from Karn's head, and he survived his injuries. Damn. So, this is how shitty of a shot he, Richard Ramirez was. How many people did he shoot and they lived? This guy, he shot point blank three times in the head. The guy survives. Now, is he going to be fucked up? Oh, yeah. But. The moral of the story, kids. Get a bigger handgun. Get a larger caliber handgun. At least get a 9 mil. They're not expensive, Just dude. Yeah. Um, so, we're going to talk about some suspected victims. I, I thought that this was going to be two parts. 
However, it's not. It'll probably end up being one part. Um, but that's okay, because we'll, we have plenty of stuff to go from here. Um, suspected victims on the night of June 27, 1985. 32-year-old Patty Elaine Higgins was murdered in her Acadia home. The crime was not discovered until July 2nd, when she did not show up for her work. Her attacker had sodomized her, strangled her, and slashed her throat. Ramirez was charged with murder and burglary in relation to Higgins' murder. However, the charges against him in the case were eventually dropped due to a lack of concrete physical evidence leading to Higgins' murder to the Night Soccer crimes. Based on a statement made to an investigator, he is also suspect in the San Francisco double murder of Christina Caldwell, 58, and 70-year-old Mary Caldwell. The Caldwell sisters were found stabbed to death in their Telegraph Hill apartment on February 20, 1985. While incarcerated, Ramirez openly bragged to a prison officer and other inmates about having killed more than 20 people. Which would make him one of the most prolific serial killers in history. Um, if the 20 people are true. Obviously, we've seen at least 10. Um, so, he's up there. Um, Erickson gave a detailed description of the assailant to investigators and police obtained a cast of Ramirez's footprints from the Romero house. The stolen Toyota was found abandoned on August 28th in Koreatown, Los Angeles. Fitting. And police obtained a single fingerprint from the rearview mirror despite Ramirez's careful efforts to wipe the car clean of his prints. Print was positively identified to belong to Ramirez who was described by police as a 25-year-old drifter from Texas with a long rap sheet that included many arrests for traffic and illegal drug violations. The identification of Ramirez's prints was described as a near miracle, as the system used to identify him was recently installed, as well as the fact that the system contained the fingerprints of criminals born after January 1st, 1960, only a month before Ramirez was born. So, and here they're obviously talking about the system that we still use to this day, um, where we can cross-reference fingerprints. However, you have to be in the system already. If you've never committed a crime and been fingerprinted, it's not going to come up. Um, on August 29, 1985, law enforcement officials decided to release a mugshot of Ramirez from a 1984 arrest for auto theft to the media. At the police press conference, it was announced, we know who you are now, and everyone, soon everyone else will. There will be no place you can hide. That's some big words. Um, on August 30th, 1985, Ramirez took a bus to Tucson, Arizona to visit his brother, unaware that he had become the lead story in, a virtually, in virtually every major newspaper and television news program across California. After failing to meet his brother due to him not being home, Ramirez returned to L.A. early in the morning of August 31st. He walked past police officers who were staking out the bus terminal in hopes of catching the killer should he attempt to flee an outbound bus and into a convenience store in East Los Angeles. After noticing a group of elderly Hispanic women fearfully identifying him as El Matador, Ramirez saw his face on the front page of the newspaper La Opinion with a headline calling him Invasor Nocturno and fled the store in a panic. After running across the Santa Ana freeway, he attempted to carjack an, an unlocked Ford Mustang, but was pulled out by angry resident Faustino Pinon. 
Ramirez ran across the street and attempted to take car keys from Angelina De La Torre. The woman's husband, Manuel De La Torre, witnessed the attempt and struck Ramirez over the head with a fence post in the pursuit. Damn. Yeah. A group of over 10 residents formed and chased Ramirez down Hubbard Street in Boyle Heights. So just imagine this mob of angry people chasing the Night Stalker. This dude with big eyes, gap teeth, just running from this mob of people. Uh, Only they had finished him off. Yeah. The group of citizens forced and held Ramirez down and relentlessly beat him. At around 8 a.m., police were called over a disturbance in the area with few details with indications of a fight. Police quickly arrived at the 3700 block of Hubbard and found that Ramirez was severely beaten and unarmed and took him into custody. The crowd grew to several hundred people and was beginning becoming unruly towards Ramirez and responding officer Andy Ramirez stayed behind while officer Jim Kaiser drove Ramirez to the Hollenbeck police station. Jury selection for the trial began July 22, 1988. At his first court appearance, Ramirez raised a hand with a pentagram drawn on it and yelled, Hail Satan. On August 3rd, 1988, the LA Times reported that some jail employees overheard Ramirez planning to shoot the prosecutor with a gun, which Ramirez intended to have smuggled into the courtroom. Consequently, a metal detector was installed outside and the intensive and intensive searches were conducted on people entering. On August 14th, the trial was interrupted because one of the jurors, Phyllis Singletary, did not arrive at the courtroom. Later that day, she was found shot to death in her apartment. The jury was terrified, wondering if Ramirez had somehow directed this event from inside his prison cell and whether or not he could reach other jurors. However, it was ultimately determined that Ramirez was not responsible for Singletary's death as she was shot and killed by her boyfriend, who later committed suicide with the same weapon in a hotel. The alternate juror who replaced Singletary was too frightened to return to her home. On September 20th, 1989, Ramirez was convicted of all 43 charges, 13 counts of murder, 5 attempted murders, 11 sexual assaults, and 14 burglaries. During the penalty phase of the trial on November 7th, 1989, so you were 19 at this time. Do you remember the news about this? Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. I'm sure this made national news. Oh, yeah. Yeah, this was huge. I remember my mom telling me, because we're both true crime fans, when Ramirez, and this is all going down and everything, she remember even being in New York, like, everybody across the country was terrified. Oh, and people were glued to their TVs. and. Yeah, like, I, I remember seeing pictures of him in the courtroom holding up his hand. Yeah. With the back grandma. So... Um, he was sentenced to death in California's gas chamber. Oh, I wish we still had that. He stated to reporters after the death sentences, big deal. Death always went with the territory. See you in Disneyland. That's a fucked up statement. Uh, I'll consider the source. Yeah. The trial cost $1.8 million, which at the time made it the most expensive murder trial in history of California until surpassed by... The O.J. Simpson case, which we will touch on. Um, Yes. Because it's one of my favorite cases. By the time of the trial, Ramirez had fans who were writing him letters and paying him visits. Beginning in 1985, Doreen Leoy wrote him 
nearly 75 letters during his incarceration. In 88, Ramirez proposed to Leoy, and on October 3rd, 1996, they were married in California's San Quentin State Prison. For many years before Ramirez's death, Leoy stated that she would commit suicide when Ramirez was executed. However, she eventually broke ties with Ramirez in 2009 after DNA confirmed he had raped and murdered nine-year-old Mi Luong. By the time of his death in 2013, Ramirez was engaged to a 23-year-old writer. On August 7, 2006, Ramirez's first round of state appeals ended unsuccessfully when the California Supreme Court upheld his convictions and death sentence. On September 7, 2006, the California Supreme Court denied his request for a rehearing. Ramirez had additional appeals pending until the time of his death. Ramirez died of complications secondary to B-cell lymphoma at Marin General Hospital in Green Bray, California, on June 7, 2013. Man, it's only been 10 years. We just hit the 10-year mark. Mm. He had also been affected by chronic substance abuse and chronic hepatitis C viral infection. Yeah, just for everybody out there, lymphoma cancer is not a pleasant way to go. No, stomach cancer is Stomach cancer is often described as one of the painful ways to go. Lung cancer is a miserable way to go. Pancreatic but is for, the worst. Yes, but for what I understood with lymphoma... Essentially, how Richard Mears would have spent his last years is his body is basically, yeah, and his body basically eating himself until he's nothing. I saw pictures of him before he died. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, before we conclude, Caleb, I actually found a little interesting tidbit about uh, old Richard here. So, um, we've all heard of Sean Penn, right? One of the great actor, done some great movies. I know exactly where you're going with this. Go ahead. So. All right, so Sean Penn has a he. Well, he's kind of te- he's old now. He's older, but in his heyday back in the eighties and nineties, Sean Penn had a reputation for a um hot-headed temper. So right around the time when Ramirez was in, was incarcerated and being tri- on trial. Um, Sean Penn was doing a, I believe it was a 60-day stint in the L.A. County lockup for driving recklessly and getting into an assault case with um, an extra. He just, like, just punched a dude on the set. Um, And this was in 1987. So Ramirez had actually seen Penn do, you know, around the prison, and he had asked for... Sean's autograph via a deputy. Yeah. And it is just bizarre. So he's actually passed him a note. Uh, he said, Hey, Sean, stay tough and hit them, hit, hit them again. Richard Ramirez, 666. Uh, Sean um, actually wrote back to him and he said, he said, um, you know, Richard, it is impossible to be incarcerated and not feel a certain kinship with your fellow inmates. Well, Richard, I've done the impossible. I feel absolutely no kinship with you. And I hope gas descends upon your upon you before sanity does, you know? Uh, now, this should also be, should be very interesting. Sean, is, Sean Penn is a well-known, even back then, he is a well-known anti 
death penalty yes. advocate. He has he has dedicated a good portion of his life fighting to get the death penalty outlawed across the United States. You how bad do you have to be? Yep. To basically change the mind uh, of an anti-death penalty guy to be like, you know what? Just I'll pull the trigger. I'll pull the lever myself and kill you. Jesus Christ! That's yeah. that. I thought that was crazy. And that's a little tidbit about Richard Ramirez. And of course, he he had a good little laugh about it and still sent some weird hell Satan thing to Sean Penn, and that was it. Yeah. So. Richard Ramirez, a really sick bastard. Um, We are going to move along next week, and I do believe we are going to be discussing one of my favorite places in the world, Skinwalker Ranch. (laughs) There is a lot to unpack with Skinwalker Ranch, so that may end up being a two-parter, but we're we're going to hit Skinwalker Ranch, and then we'll probably come back to some more serial killers and stuff, because I know everybody likes that, um, and we have some great ones on the docket, so... But yeah, um... With that... I want to thank you all for visiting the Scarlet Tavern. Please remember to turn in your glasses, push in your seats, and as always, tip the bard. Good night, everybody. Good night. Good night.